Doctor MD, a podcast brought to you by HotDoc, the all-in-one patient engagement platform for Australian practices. I'm Michael, the content editor here at HotDoc, and in this podcast, I talk to doctors from all over the world who are pushing the boundaries of medicine to improve patient outcomes. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Rishi Manchanda, a physician, author, and healthcare leader who has spent the past decade developing strategies to improve health outcomes in resource-poor communities. Dr. Manchanda has served as Director of Social Medicine for a network of community health centres in Los Angeles, and as the lead primary care physician for homeless veterans. He is also the president of Health Begins, a social enterprise that provides healthcare professionals and community partners with tools to improve the care they provide to people in their local communities. His TED talk, What Makes Us Sick, Look Upstream, has been watched by more than 2 million people worldwide. And his 2013 TED book, The Upstream Doctors, which introduces a new model of healthcare to support those from low resource communities, has become recommended reading in medical schools across the world. I apologize for the sound quality in this episode. The, the room Dr. Manchanda was recording in didn't have much furniture in it, so there was a bit of an echo. Um, but despite the quality of the audio, I really wanted to share this conversation because the work Rishi and his team is up to is just like, so important uh, and the message is so important. So I'm sure you can bear the sound in light of uh, the content itself. Let's dive in. I, th- I think just to get started, I usually just like to go back a little bit and and kind of find out how you found yourself in medicine. What's what's your background in general? Yeah, thanks. And may I call you Mike or Michael? What, what do you prefer? Uh, Mike's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Mike, great. Yeah, yeah thank, so thanks, Mike. Um, why did I go into medicine or how did I get into this? Um, so I, it's a great question and I always try to ponder it um, instead of giving a stock answer. Yeah. You know, I... Um, Early on, and I, I mean early on, um, was exposed to politics in the most personal sense. Um, what I mean is my parents are both uh, products of partition, which was, as you're familiar with global history, was a major event that happened in 1947 at the birth of India and Pakistan. My mother and father uh, were, are both Hindu. Um, they lived on what became the Pakistan side of the border. Uh, their families, of course, were there. And so when partition happened, for those who are students of history are well aware that uh, the partition that, that accompanied the um, independence of both India and Pakistan meant that millions of people all of a sudden became refugees overnight because a border was established, requiring both uh, both people, peoples on both sides of the border to to move um, overnight. And so my my father's side of the family, my, my mother's side of the family were both a part of that exodus that went westward from what is now part of modern day Pakistan into Northern India. And of course there were millions of others who did the same in reverse. So um, just to paint that picture more, you know, my father was five at the time of partition and uh, told me a story when I was no more than maybe seven or eight years old that I remember vividly to this day of being on his father's hand, bicycle handlebars um, while he was, uh, his father was, my, my grandfather was bicycling around in New Delhi shortly after arriving there after this long trek and saw a, a home that had been abandoned um, and said, well, I guess that's our new home and overnight adopted that as the, the home. So, uh, you know, when I was growing up, I was born in the U.S., but went back quite a bit with my family at the age of seven, of eight, I lived there for two years, and then we went back quite a bit between the U.S. and New Delhi. And both my mother's side of the family and my father's side of the family um, 
uh, spoke of, um, you know, home, spoke of their sense of communities and spoke of the nation with, um, with a living sense of what it's like to, of what politics can do, of what um, some abstract concept, some event that happens signed by people you don't know in some distant, you know, capital, um, uh, you know, what that means in terms of an experience for an individual family. So, you know, there was, it was a traumatic episode for millions of people across South Asia and uh, the psychic kind of remnants were uh, very palpable at, at every family gathering when I was there. And so I didn't know it at the time, but deep down I had a deep sense of um, the fact that all politics is personal um, and that policies, um, the, the decisions that are made in some faraway place can have profound impacts on the contours of an individual's life, on, the, on not just your sense of who you are, but your sense of your family's past, you know, your ancestors, <laughs> right? When, when, your, when my ancestors' home um, all of a sudden moved 500 miles or almost 1,000 miles you know, westward um, and became a new, you know, new part of the map, when that, that disruption, that uprooting for myself, my family, um, and for millions of other people like us, has, it still has implications that I'm still unpacking in terms of our family story and our family lineage. Yeah. And I share all that to say, Mike, um, you know, you asked about medicine, but I'm telling you about politics and about That's partition. Right, yeah. And the reason it makes sense is because uh, as I was growing up, um, that sense of being, um, that those, those stories gave me a sense of the other, gave me a sense of what the, what, what others go through. Because when you're othered, when you become the other, when you're, when you uproot, you have no choice but to be empathetic, to understand the, the, what other people go through because you're, you yourself are like that. And when my parents moved to the U.S. and I was born in New York and then you know raised in various parts of the U.S., uh, one foot in the U.S., one foot in India, I always had a deep sense of the other. And for me, um, because of some relatives in my, my father's side of the family and my mother's side of the family who were in medicine, I had a sense that they were able to connect in their professions with the other, with, with people who felt like they had been uh, the outsider, with people who felt like they had been uprooted uh, people who felt like they were somehow alone or stranded, and and either whether that happens through the experience of a disease, um, the stigma that some sometimes accompanies some diseases, or it, or that sense of otherness happens because of dislocation, right? That's caused by that manifests in illness, um, or it's caused by all sorts of other forces that um, that are well beyond the the control of an individual whatever led to the sense of otherness, um, somehow medicine in my family became something that I saw was an avenue to connect with people and to serve and to learn and to grow. And it was, uh, it was an honor profession. And, and um, when I came across it through relatives, my um, uncles and a couple of aunts who were in medicine. So when I um, was of age, when I was doing studies um, in college or in, in uni, um, as you guys would call it, when I was going to university, I studied politics, I studied political science, I studied international development, and I also studied biology in part because I was just curious about this field of medicine, not really understanding how I could connect the two. Um, in college, I came across social medicine, the story of social medicine, the history of social medicine, the story of pioneers like Rudolf Furkow and um, Frederick Engels and um, John Snow, the people who pioneered both social medicine as well as public health. And uh, it clicked somehow. This uh, what clicked most was uh, 
that I found a field that um, in some ways, by definition, cared about the other, the otherness, the apart, the people who were displaced, uh, that had a lexicon, a vocabulary to speak about the phenomenon of what happens for an individual person in terms of health and disease and illness, as well as the lexicon, the same within the same lexicon, be able to speak about community and society. Um, the I found a field, social medicine, where, where mentors and um, you know, authors and, and writers of this field seem to be as proficient in talking about um, the impact of politics as the particular, you know, a particular pathology, you know, in terms of um, uh, the biology of a person. And that really appealed to me, this ability to kind of speak to both the individual and, and broader kind of forces. So I, I went headlong into it seeking mentors. I was fortunate to adopt <laughs> Paul Farmer and a few other folks early in my career as mentors, even though they didn't know they had me as a mentee. <laughs> I reached out to them and then I, I, I was hooked. So, you know, I, I knew that this is the path I wanted to forge. So I, I went into social medicine because of a deep sense of um, a personal sense in the sense that I'm still kind of unpacking in my own kind of psychology of uh, this, this affinity to understand the experience of to empathize with um, what it means to feel like the other. And then how do we create the, the types of, how do, how do we care for somebody who feels like all of us do at some point in our lives, like the other, how do we care for that person? How do we improve the systems that make that person, that make whole populations feel othered to feel outside? Um, so that's been my lifelong kind of passion. I, it's, it's, I feel like my interest in medicine was almost, uh, and social medicine in particular, was, um, was a natural extension of my own family's history and understanding of politics and pathology being a very personal and intertwined set of phenomena. Yeah. No, no, fantastic. And, and how does the, the path go to kind of starting Health Begins? Because that seems kind of like, would you say that's the primary um, the project that you're working on or the primary company that you're working on? Yeah, it's, yeah that's what right. What does that path look like? Yeah. Yeah, so concretely, you know, after I knew I wanted to um, understand and forge a career in social medicine, I, I signed up for a program in the U.S. called the National Health Service Corps. It's not a well-known program um, in the U.S., let alone, um, you know, outside of the U.S., but it's a program that's quite brilliant in its design. It's, a, it's, it's very akin to a lot of service types of opportunities in other countries, too. The premise of this National Health Service Corps was uh, if you... Uh, if you commit as a health professional, in this case, as a medical professional, to working in underserved, vulnerable communities, the government will help subsidize, if not fully pay for the cost of your medical school. And in the U.S., in a very privatized, very expensive um, healthcare system, medical school itself is also very, very expensive. And so I applied for and was fortunate to get the scholarship. And so as I was going through my medical training, my public health training, I knew that I was going to have to return um, the the scholarship that I had received to pay for that education in the form of service. So when I finished my training uh, in internal medicine and pediatrics, I you know, finished my medical training, then I went to train as an internist and a pediatrician. So being able to take care of adults and children. When I finished that training um, here in Los Angeles, where I now reside with my family, um, I then had to go find a place to fulfill that commitment to the National Health Service Corps, find a place to work. So I was fortunate through, you know, long story short, I was able to um, find some wonderful work in South Central Los Angeles. Um, you know, it's it's a part in the it's a part of the world that I think many people are aware of because of the way it's been depicted in, in movies and in rap and in history. South LA has a very storied kind of history, 
And certainly there was a lot of lore, even being in Los Angeles, there's a lot of my mentors in other parts of Los Angeles where I was training who would say, you want to go work where? You want to go work in South Central Los Angeles? And I said, yeah, that's where the opportunity is. And that's where I can fulfill this commitment. So um, I was fortunate and I worked at a community health center, essentially a a clinic for um, vulnerable populations, uh, for the poor, low income populations, minoritized populations and spent four years uh, working there and said, well, this is the place where I finally get to now take my social medicine passion, the training that I've now received and apply it in practice. And after four years of working there, I found that um, I learned an immense amount, had an immense privilege to be able to work alongside peers, both in the clinic as well as in the community on a whole variety of issues, um, both conventional medical issues like improving hypertension and diabetes management um, as well as, you know, social medicine um, topics like food security, housing stability, um, health and human rights. We, we had an incredible time starting to work at various levels, individual, institutional, and even community to start to take on these social medicine topics. And it was a heady time. And yet, um, after four years of doing that, I found that the people that I was reaching out to every day, mentors, people, you know, across the U.S., and across the world, you know, who I, who I was hearing about when I reached out, I realized every time I would reach out and ask for advice, ask to borrow some notes, ask to see what kind of protocol they use to screen for food insecurity, whatever it was, um, what I was doing was very inefficient. <laughs> every single time, you know, I was trying to reach out or people would reach out to me, you know, and in that exchange, it just felt like we were we were just connecting um, these dots on a radar and every, and the space in between felt so vast. Um, and, and the last thing I realized that I needed to do, especially when I had very scarce time, you know, that when I was spending so much time, you know, at work, the last thing I could, I could do was to squander my time or squander the time of the people I was caring for. Right? I, just, I felt like it, the inefficiency just rubbed me. So I started Health Begins in 2012 largely out of frustration. I started it because I, I thought we needed to f- have some sort of professional home, a professional network, so that myself and other people who cared deeply about these questions of the concrete you know, applications of social medicine and practice, that we needed some sort of way to communicate more efficiently, just to share notes. And, and after looking for four years and not finding a professional home online or at conferences that I'd have the privilege of going to, you know, coming up short, I realized, well, maybe Health Begins is something we could start uh, so I started Health Begins really out of uh, need for a professional home um, and to connect with others who are sharing notes. It since um, it, it stayed a labor of love for several years. I moved from South Central Los Angeles to um, the U.S. has the VA system, the Veterans Administration, essentially a healthcare system for for, for war veterans. And I became a lead primary care physician for homeless veterans. And in the U.S., we have many social ills. One of the biggest, most egregious ones is the fact that homelessness is so rampant and within the homeless population, veterans um, who would ostensibly, you would think, receive the best public benefits, the best safety net um, in the U.S. at least often don't get exactly that. So in Los Angeles, there are there are 50,000, at least eight years ago when I started doing this work, there were 50,000 odd homeless individuals on any given night in the, in Los Angeles and a major section of those were homeless veterans. So I started working there for four years and, you know, doing building up programs and teams um, and learning lessons about how to address social medicine and practice and health begins continue to be this labor of love nights and weekends. I would um, myself and a small ragtag group of volunteers, we would just respond to requests. 
we would give presentations and increasingly people started to reach out to us because we were a network a convener. People started to reach out to us to provide trainings to say, hey, you, it seems like you have a pretty good finger on the pulse of best practices or emerging practices in the space. Can you provide some trainings? And it was a phenomenal opportunity because from 2012 to about 2017, while I was doing my day jobs, Health Begins proved to be this testing ground to take all the lessons that we were learning on the front lines, both myself and my colleagues and the people in the network, and then start to teach it. And when you're forced to, when you're given an opportunity to, and then you have to um, then, you know, give an opportunity to train or to teach, it's a very sobering moment to say, well, do I know what I've, do I know enough to teach? How do I teach this? And so I did deep dive research. You know, every time I'd have a speaking opportunity or a training opportunity, just it forced me to really look at what I was learning, what we were seeing in the field. And what amassed over five years of on, you know, of Health Begins work on the side was this body of work that had ultimately taken the best of quality improvement, of performance management, including financial management skills, also community partnership skills and community organizing kind of skills and competencies around community health informatics and data informatics and data science and skills and competencies I realized were necessary around um, just basic understanding of structural determinants like structural racism and taking that and translating that into account. So what emerged was a set of competencies. We actually have mapped out six core competencies that we realized that effective um, clinicians, health professionals um, needed to be able to drive this kind of upstream change. And so in 2017, after we had essentially codified these things, um, we were given an opportunity to turn this work into full-time. So since 2017, Health Begins has now been my, my full-time work with a small team that works across the country to um, help drive change. Yeah, no, yeah, it's it's very cool. It, it, I, I probably should have said this at the beginning, but in terms of like, how would you describe what Health Begins does? I know that you were you were explaining it, but would you say it's more of a think tank? Is it more of like a place that you go to actually, you know, find other other people that can yeah. help? Yeah, we're. It's a great question. What we what we say is that we are uh, we do three things. We are a consulting firm to help um, health systems and community organizations develop strategies with rigor, so strategic planning consulting. Um, we are a training firm, so we provide not just consulting about how to develop a strategy, but actually the, the support to implement a strategy. And so, for example, we run a number of learning collaboratives where teams from various health systems and communities come together to be able to um, articulate specific goals and then use what we call upstream quality improvement to then drive outcomes, to improve outcomes for individual social needs like food and housing, as well as community level social determinants like food deserts or food apartheid and various issues. So we, we do a lot of work on the consulting side to help draft strategies. And then we do a lot of work on the training side to um, implement strategies using the quality improvement uh, adaptation that we've created. And then the third thing we do is community and advocacy work. Um, we, because we have been doing this work for some time um, and because we, we know there's a broader community of people out there who share similar interests and not just values, but real specific kind of interests in developing skills, these competencies. Um, these, these are the so-called upstreamists, as I call them, because we know there's a, no, a number of upstreamists in the healthcare workforce who, are in, who really see their job as connecting downstream healthcare provision with upstream social and public health services. And they, they view their careers like I do as being the interstitial of people, the people who connect downstream systems and upstream uh, policies. 
because there's so many of us like like that out there, a lot of what we do is create a, a sense of community and uh, convening. So we convene, we advocate, um, we, we do a lot of partnership work in that space. So I would say we are a consulting firm, a training firm, and a community um, advocacy building firm. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And and I want to get to the upstreamers part. And, and I think, you know, people who are listening are probably fairly sure what that means anyway. It's kind of self-explanatory, but before we just go there, um, you, you mentioned the six core competencies of, of, of a doctor to fulfill, I guess, like, yeah, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, but yeah, what are those core competencies and, and, and what for? Sorry. Sure, sure. Well, let me let me start by um, defining this term of upstream itself. Um, sure. It's used quite a bit, obviously, and it's been used for a long time, as long as the upstream parable has been around. This parable of you know three friends who come to a river and they see people drowning in the water, their children, adults, the elderly in the water, and so these three friends do what all of us would do. They they jump in, they try to save people, and so the first friend um, is rescuing many people who are about to drown or go over the waterfall. The second friend has a bright idea to weave together many branches of, uh, and, and twine along the bank, the banks of the river and, and coordinate a raft, essentially build a raft. So there's the rescuer, there's the raft builder who is ushering many people to safety. And then there's the third friend who is the upstreamist um, in this parable. The third friend is the person who is doing the work, not pontificating, but you know, actually doing the work of saving people in the water, stream, swimming upstream. And when the two other friends shout to her and say, where are you going? There are people here to save. She shouts back and she says, I know um, I'm going to find out who or what is throwing these people in the water. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's the upstreamist. So we've always had the rescuer. We've always had the raft builder, meaning specialty care or emergency care, acute care. You know, that's tertiary prevention work um, and, the, and the rescue work. That's we all need that. It's essential. We need trauma surgeons, ICU uh, nurses. Um, intensive case managers, those who you, oncologists, rheumatologists, you know, the, yeah. the specialties that you need when we're in dire straits. Um, we also need, you know, the raft builders, though, that's the work of primary care. Um, and so in the U.S., at least, the, the, the story we've told ourselves is uh, the story of just those two friends, where it's specialty care and there's primary care. And those two things are necessary, but insufficient. The story that we've, we've been telling um, through Health Begins work, and, you know, I think resonates with a lot of audiences across the world is the story that includes not just those two friends, the specialty care model, and the primary care model, but also includes a, a, a section of people in the healthcare system who are upstreamists, who are by definition connecting the work of healthcare to community and public sector, uh, social sector kind of work. When we So that parable is something we use, but to define it more precisely, when we say moving upstream, we mean something very specific actually by that. The definition for moving upstream for us as we work with our partners uh, here at Health Begins is to move upstream means to continuously address uh, the root causes uh, of social health inequities, right? It means to, um, that means specifically working at three levels. It means improving individual health-related social needs, like a family who is food or patient who is food insecure and has health complications. That's the first level. It also means community, moving upstream means addressing community level social determinants of health and we use social determinants of health as a term to really describe community level phenomenon. For example, not just food insecurity for an individual, but a food desert for a community where there's a, a general phenomena where there's a lack of healthy, affordable food. And then the third level is uh, moving upstream also requires us to act at the level, not just of the individual and the community, but a societal level 
to be able to dismantle structural determinants of health and equity, not social determinants of health, but structural determinants of health and equity. And so particularly in the US, but I think this is true globally, that means structural racism. It means you know, um, colonialism, neocolonialism in the way it manifests. Um, it means economic inequities. And um, that's what it means to move upstream. And so when we work with our partners, we say, if you're a health system or a primary care practice and you're interested in moving upstream, if you're gonna do it with us, we're gonna actually introduce this definition and then help articulate where you can lead, where you can partner, where you can support to be able to move upstream at all three of those levels. And that's a really key kind of definition. So a long way of kind of then getting to your, I wanted to put that preamble that sure. yeah. to preface it because then to answer your question more specifically, well, if, if we're gonna um, stipulate that the definition moving upstream is to, is to rigorously, continuously find ways to improve outcomes um, by mobilizing and coordinating action at those three different levels, right? Um, it, that takes skills that often don't exist, right? Right now in, in many healthcare systems, um, many health professional schools just don't all the time train to this. And even public health uh, professionals who you know, are very well versed in many of these very issues themselves often don't have the, the, the tools or the competency sometimes to actually um, connect with healthcare, um, social services or other downstream service providers, right? To build that kind of those partnerships. So in any case, we, we, there are six competencies that we've identified. Um, I'll, I'll pull up the list if I'm, if I'm misremembering them. Sure. <laughs> One of them is understanding the essentials of population health and public health. And, and that competency and that we really drill down on the sense of the key terms and definitions. For us, we mean, you know, that means understanding what the difference between population health management, which in the US has largely come to mean defining the outcomes, improving outcomes for defined patients or, you know, panels of patients. Um, that's different, population health management there is different from community health which is about improving outcomes for defined places, not necessarily for just defined bodies of patients. And then the last is societal health, right? Which is looking at public health and policies and um, laws uh, that obviously shape uh, the distribution of resources and power in society that ultimately drive you know, um, health outcomes. Mm -hmm. So the essentials of population health competencies is the first competency where we really kind of spend time going through the fundamentals and understanding key definitions that includes uh, particularly relevant in the U.S. now, and I think maybe around the world, uh, that includes understandings of the difference between race and racism, understanding racism itself also as something that is not just interpersonal, but also institutional, um, right? and understanding that definition. So the Essentials course is our, our first core competency, and we, create mod we have created modules to help really unpack that, and that's the fundamental one. Beyond that, there's a few other competencies besides the Essentials course. There's competencies around um, understanding upstream quality improvement. And so this is taking the, the, the rapid cycle, you know, improvement models, the PDSA, Plan to Study Act kind of cycles, many things that are very familiar to us in healthcare, um, but adapts them to address social needs and social determinants and structural determinants rather than like decreasing no-share rates or improving hand washing or some other kind of healthcare metric that we're more familiar with using it in. So upstream quality improvement is the second one. A third one is um, the understanding structures of race, power, and class. So we actually walk through that and how those structures and applied um, impact and apply to healthcare. So we, we walk through that and that understanding is so essential. And again, the last um, several months in the US in particular for us in the US have um, in some ways elevated and made, it, made plain the case for having that kind of structural competency. 
A third one is uh, community health informatics, data informatics, understanding you know the, the different sources of data, both from patient level data that oftentimes is captured in our electronic medical records, um, but also data in the community. So how to take community level data from community surveys um, and public health data, and then create essentially an understanding of community health informatics where we're looking at individual populations, data, and community level data and understanding as an extremist, how to interpret that data pull that data together, communicate that data to be able to drive change at one or more of those three levels. So that's a, another competency. Uh, another one is um, financing. So we actually look at the uh, community health financing and population health financing. So this is a really critically important competency that uh, I found was for me personally, at least one of the areas of the, where the learning curve was the steepest. Um, understanding the, the financial models, the payment models that um, really align the incentives or misalign the incentives that allow for us to be able to address social needs for individuals or social determinants for a community. Understanding the payment models and the financing models, both for, both for individual patient populations as well as for communities, is fundamentally important. And we, for the most part, teach that competency in the context of the U.S., which is where, where that competency is even more required because of how fragmented and um, messed up our payment models are when it comes to healthcare. Um, so there was a, there's a few, there's, there's, I think there's leadership and partnership is another one. So where we speak specifically about some competencies regarding, you know, um, leadership development, stakeholder engagement and partnership development, because by definition for us, moving upstream is a team sport. So it's not just about the teams within your health system. It's also partners in your community and forging teams with cross sector teams that takes skill. And a lot of the things that, um, a lot of the skills that we, particularly in medicine, this is truer, I think, for medical providers than it is for, say, nursing or social workers. But um, there's a lot of baggage that we've, a lot of bad things we've learned, I would say, in organized medicine about what it means to wield power, um, where we often are seen as the font of knowledge around a particular area. And so we, our expertise, are not our, the informational kind of expertise that we have the fact that we have access to a body of knowledge right now is where our power drives. And that doesn't really teach us to kind of work in teams necessarily or, or to even recognize other forms of expertise like relational expertise, say, for example, from a community health worker or a peer navigator. So when it comes to leadership and partnership development, we spend a lot of time thinking about you know, how to recognize sources of power, um, sources of expertise, understanding then how to apply very specific skills of stakeholder management, stakeholder engagement, and partnership development. And yeah. working on that. So I think those are six, but I may have missed one. That's okay. No, I, yeah, I'm sorry to challenge you so much. I didn't realize there were, I, know, I guess, more modules. But um, yeah, yeah I, I, doing a bit of research on you, I, I heard in, in one of your talks, you, you talk about, you know, that's such an important question for doctors to ask a patient is like, where do you live? And it seems like doctors know this and that, you know, already. And, and it's kind of like, it's not the fact that they, they don't know that, you know, your circumstances will determine a lot of your health, but it's it, it's more that they can't necessarily help like in those situations. And and and, and I think you actually said that this is the, one of the leading causes of burnout in physicians. Yep. So just yet, yeah, how how do they kind of how do people navigate that? Sorry, I had to tell my five year old to quiet down a little bit. That's okay. Mine. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> but uh, the question was, you know, what does that mean then for um, this? Uh, I wanted to unpack your question there sure. a little bit to understand, like, is it the question about what prevents us from asking, where do you live or the, uh, or the what, sense yeah. of efficacy it takes? It, yeah, no, I, I, I guess it's like, I think why people don't ask it is, is probably 
understood, which is that they don't know how to address that problem. But yeah, obviously that question still needs to be asked. So how can doctors navigate that question? Like if they can't move you from your house kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So th this is such a, it's such a great question. And it's something that it, it, it stymied me from the get go. Right. Um, even in my medical training, it was something that it seems such an important bit in, you know, many of us in healthcare are trained to obtain a social history when speaking with a patient, a social history to understand, you know, what's happening in the context of that individual's life, the social context of that person's life. Where do you live? You know, how are you, how are you doing? Who else is in your family? Who else, you know, lives with you? What um, barriers do you have? And there's all sorts of things. And we, we've, we've been taking a social history for a long time and, in, and in, in medicine, at least, you know, and nursing and in social work, certainly, you know, thinking about, uh, for example, for adolescents or in the context of HIV medicine or certainly taking care of homeless individuals, geriatric medicine. You know, there are branches of medicine where we've long understood that understanding the social context is essential, like foundational to uh, good care. Because if you don't understand that social context, everything else will make no sense. I, I think what was so what stymied me, what, what befuddled me, you know, early in my, my career, uh, even during training was was the, the fact that we hadn't standardized um, a really good social history for everybody um, and particularly you know individuals who had potential risk factors um, and who also did for, for individuals who may have social risk factors but don't fit within the stereotypes of people we think who might have that you know like homeless individuals or HIV positive individuals who for whom we've gotten used to asking social history or for adolescents you know where it's a given what about everybody else and the, the unseen kind of social needs of people? So the biggest challenge to that is exactly to your point, the, the reason that um, we don't ask is because uh, whether it's doctors or you know other healthcare professionals routinely, the reason we don't ask is because it's not incentivized, right? We haven't really um, created payment models in Western, in, U, in US at least, I won't say Western medicine, I would say in the US in a, a very fee for service environment there has really been very limited incentives to, to uh, where the social history becomes really meaningful. And so because of that, we've actually, our ability to understand the social context of a patient's life, or for that matter, the social context of the lives of our patients, plural, the community we serve, we've atrophied that muscle, All right. So as essential as it is for certain patient populations, and as essential as it is, I would say for, you know, a good standard of care writ large, where we, a social history is, foundational to um, understanding how to tailor your, your care. As essential as that is, we've atrophied that muscle because the incentives haven't been there, right, to, to honor that. And because of that, when you atrophy the muscle, right, um, when, you, when we forget as a collective kind of profession or a set of healthcare professions about what it means to ask that and then be able to do something about it, when we atrophy that, that we just don't we end up creating all these strange self-fulfilling prophecies. Well, I, I can't ask because I don't know what to tell them, or I feel like it's outside of the gambit of what a healthcare prof professional should do. We start actually um, reinforcing, right? The, the atrophy, <laughs> we, we reinforce the, this biomedical kind of model because we just don't know what to do with the biopsychosocial model. And so therefore we continue to kind of do what we know to do. We over develop a bicep and yet we have no tricep. And so we have these, you know, grotesque looking kind of healthcare systems where we're atrophied in many parts of our muscles. And then we have these ginormous biceps walking around. So it's, it, we're very, uh, it's a very odd thing that happens. And um, what we've understood at Health Begins, what I started to tap into even in my early career was the sense that um, it's really about a sense of efficacy, um, building up a sense of confidence among 
healthcare professionals to start asking again. And the way to start doing that is multi-pronged. You start to honor and acknowledge it as part of the best standard of care and demonstrate to people that asking that can actually feel really good. It can give you a lot more joy and insight when you're caring for somebody and you ask those questions. Um, and the other prong of that strategy is to start talking about the incentives that you know led to the atrophy in the first place and thinking about ways to be able to move this forward. And a lot of what has led to the acceleration of my work with Health Begins in the past three years in the US has been the shifting economics going towards payment for value rather than volume. The shift away from fee-for-service to um, outcomes-based kind of payment models where the health of the population, the, the avoidance of hospitalizations, you know, has been held now or is, is starting to be held as a, a higher set of incentives than keeping people in the hospital or getting paid based on every time a person goes to the emergency department. So, you know, that, that those economics have now led to a sea change right now of opportunity um, and, and people. And that's, I can't tell you how, how easier, how much easier it's become in the past few years for me and for my colleagues to speak about the, the rationale for asking, because uh, now everybody understands, oh, we have to ask because if we ask that, then we can know. And then if we know, then we can actually partner. And yeah. that's the biggest kind of leap. Um, much like we've learned in every other part of medicine, this is not a cowboy sport. This is a team sport. This is a pit crew, as Atul Gawande talked about, right? This is, we don't need cowboys in medicine. We need pit crews. We need people who can come together quickly as a team and figure out how to solve for problems. And that's particularly true for patients with chronic or complex conditions. Well, that what we learned in that, you know, for for behavioral health, what we learned for any kind of complex care, this idea of a team now also applies to this yet this new transformation that we're talking about, which is the moving upstream. This is a team sport. And so a doctor or a nurse should never feel like asking the question, you know, where do you live? Do you have problems with housing? Do you have problems with food? Any of these questions. They should never feel that the the reason that asking is now going to create some sort of obligation for them because that's a very individualistic kind of view of a healthcare professional. When, when you know that you're part of a team and a part of that team includes, for example, a community health worker or a referral pathway to a community organization that can help address those needs, that creates boundless optimism and sense of efficacy, right? It, then I feel emboldened to ask the question, Mike, where do you live? You know, do you have problems with housing? And if you say yes, and I know that I have somebody on my team who could help address that, whether they're on my in my health system or in the community, then I'll know what to do with that. Then I can refer you just like I can refer you to a cardiologist if there's a heart condition. I also feel, and therefore I should, if I, if I know there's a cardiologist and I'm not a cardiologist, but I, and then I'm more um, likely to listen to your heart, <laughs> right? And listen for a heart murmur. If I know that there is a community organization out there and I know that there's a way for me to refer you, should you have a hunger problem, right? Then I'm more likely to ask about hunger. So yeah. the sense of team, the sense of connections to partners is really fundamental. So again, the three things are incentives, partners, and then um, the best standard of care. Letting people understand this is actually a joyous thing, talking to a patient about their social context. It, it transforms the relationship in a, what we found to be powerful ways. Sure. And would you say that it's also just, it's helpful in the, in the fact that a patient can kind of um, begin to see that they're not to individually be blamed, you know, like it, it's very easy for, for someone to, you know, to try and take the blame on themselves that way they have control of the situation, but, but having that conversation about, you know, that where you live does affect, you know, your health, it, it, it that education in that patient and just being able to talk openly about it, it must have like, some pretty radical yeah. effects as well. 
Yeah, moving upstream is, um, as I often say, is, is this is not about transactional improvements. This is transformational work. And the transformation, it's still, um, it's still remarkable to see the, the ripple effect of the transformations uh, when people start thinking about asking at an individual level about these issues in a healthcare system. Because the shifts, what's transforming are the norms, right? Not just the norms and the cultural kind of expectations we have as healthcare professionals, but the norms and, and that are shared by our patients and the communities we serve. There was a study in a part of the U.S. in, in Louisville, Kentucky, um, uh, more than a decade ago. And I, when I first learned the study, it just it always stuck with me because of what it represented. Um, the the director of a center for health equity for the public health department in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, launched a survey to assess community perspectives on the, the drivers of health outcomes. And there was a survey that looked at the perceptions of community residents around what led to poor outcomes like diabetes, but also you know, a variety of things. And the thought was, well, maybe this will be a sense, this will give us an insight into what community residents, including some of the most, um, most vulnerable, most disproportionately impacted community residents, black, brown communities in particular, what they feel are the drivers of this. And what was remarkable is that, um, you know, a sizable number of respondents, um, many of whom, again, are the ones most um, afflicted by, most disproportionately impacted by social determinants of health, um, food deserts and poor housing, affordable housing, you know, lack of affordable housing stock, for example, structural racism, that the responses that came back from many community residents was not a, a narrative that said, well, the drivers for poor health outcomes for myself and people in my community are social or structural. What actually came back was behavioral, like, you know, well, as people are making the wrong choices, right? And, and maybe there's something about that. And I'm, I share that story to, to say that this is, when, when we talk about the moving upstream, um, this movement, this, this movement to move upstream, it's about transforming the, the stories we tell ourselves and the norms that we share around um, the explanatory models, right? Like the paradigm, the things that, that, that we take for granted about what explains the world. Is the world round or is it flat? <laughs> is health driven by social and structural causes or is it a matter of individual choice only? These are foundational kind of values and questions. And when in the US in particular, when over many decades, we've been effective at promulgating a biomedical, a biomolecular kind of view, a reductionist view that looks as an individual, looks at the individual as a collection of various you know, health states or disease states, and then you know, um, says, well, for the longest time, well, the way to adjust those things, maybe just to eat better or sleep better or to do, those are all important things. But if that's the only view that we have where it's about health and then the choice you make to have good health, that really undermines the entire um, science space that tells us that many of the drivers of health are, again, not like how you're living necessarily as much as it is where you're living, right? Zip code in the US, postal code, right? Being more important than genetic code. So I think to your point, you know, um, when an individual patient in interaction, and I've had these multiple times happen for me directly, when you start talking about the social context of somebody's life and you start understanding more about somebody, the the dyad transforms, not just you as a professional, right? The patient and the provider, the physician and the, the patient, whoever the clinician is, the, the relationship transforms where both people are starting to understand the broader set of factors that, that shape, you know, the experience of health or disease, right? Yeah. And so I've had conversations with patients where 
they've said things like, you know, this headache that I've had for the longest time. This is a story I told in the video um, that I, I taped many, a TED talk that I taped several years ago. Um, a woman who came to me with chronic headaches and with, you know, sinus congestion for the longest time. And we spoke and, you know, it became clear that after assessing, um, asking her several questions about her living situation, she started to identify mold and water leaks and cockroaches, which are all markers of substandard or slum housing. You know, we started to talk about that. And when I said to her, I think obviously we're going to treat your symptoms right now, but it's, it's, it seems very likely that many of your symptoms, your chronic symptoms of your headaches and things, as well as all the consequences of that, like missing work and not being fully mentally kind of clear and not being available to, you know, as ready as available as you want to be for your family, that all these quali are all probably linked in some ways to what you told me about your living situation, your mold, your water leaks, your roaches. And so how can we actually refer you to a program that can help address those things? When that person, when that patient came back in several months later um, and everything was better, she, we, we talked at length, you know, about the fact that um, she, no one had ever talked to her. She said that no one had ever talked to me before about the link between my housing and my health symptoms and how how common sense it felt to her to kind of talk about that, but how she had unlearned that, right? Like the com that common sense notion that where she lives and her health outcomes, when no one talks to you about that, sometimes you start believing it. Sometimes you start thinking, well, maybe it's just a, a matter of choice. So there's something really powerful along the way of saying, about talking about these issues because it transforms um, the, our understanding and it transforms relationships. And I think by definition, that means in part, it means transforming the norms uh, in society, patient by patient, provider by provider about what it means to shape health. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I guess like uh, you know, the, the situation at the moment with, with COVID going on and, and, and how much of the, I guess, the, the poorer communities are, are being impacted. Um, I guess, how do you see like even life beyond COVID? Because there seems to be this massive disparity. We're, we're, you know, it seems like in a lot of senses, those who are very wealthy are, are less likely to be impacted by COVID and less likely to lose jobs, et cetera. And those who are on the flip side are, are the most impacted. So how do you kind of see the future of upstream health? And is are we going to get better at it because of this? Or is there concerns? I think what, what COVID is telling us is what other infectious diseases have told us. You know, every 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 infectious disease um, um, seems to tell us, which is um, most infectious diseases, and this is true. I think for most disasters, right, man-made or natural, um, always always run fastest along, always exploit the lines of inequity, structural racism, economic inequity, and infectious diseases like you know um, like COVID much like other you know, infectious diseases, this is actually where social medicine came from, right? It was uh, the exploration of the typhus epidemic in, in, in um, Eastern Europe okay. yeah. in the mid 1800s that led to you know, this understanding of social factors. So the, the story of social medicine, the story of the upstream kind of medicine, which I see is just a, a new modern variant of a social medicine kind of lineage as I see it. This story is, is an old story, right? Um, of the way in which infectious disease has always kind of revealed, um, been a mirror, um, and then have been an exploiter of, you know, the inequities that we have allowed in society. So COVID just exposed, it's the great revealer, right? Not the great equalizer. It's the great revealer of, of things in this, in, in this modern era right now. 
Um, and so what that means for, you know, moving upstream, what that means for social medicine, what that means for healthcare and for people in healthcare in particular who are motivated by um, a, an understanding of these social factors, whether they see themselves as social medicine acolytes or not. The, um, what it means is this is our moment. Um, this, is a mo this is the moment, right, to start to uh, choose. We have to make a choice about whether we're going to lean in to um, this moment, to take the, the lessons that are so readily available to us because of COVID. The inequities are so stark. The, the experiences are so grave. The, the impact is so profound, right, on um, our communities and especially um, neighbors, loved ones, people we know, people who, who help us, who maintain us, who serve us, you know, in every society, people who are less privileged, right? We know now what this looks like in perhaps in ways that we can't, that are undeniable, um, more undeniable, more likely to be undeniable now than ever before. So this is a moment to actually lean into that and say, yes, let's actually acknowledge the, the truths now that are being revealed by COVID. Let's talk about what the implications are for us then as we uh, as we think about what it means to recover, respond to, and then move forward from COVID. Um, and that means, I think, one really concrete question, do we want to recover or do we want to reimagine, right? Do we want to get restore some sense of normal <laughs> as if what was normal, what was normal pre-COVID was somehow equitable and just and fair? <laughs> or do you want to actually um, uh, reimagine, reshape, redesign um, the structures, the, the systems, and even the way we uh, imagine ourselves as practitioners in our systems, right? Um, that we can, that we should, can, can we do that to be able to drive more justice and equity? And I think for me, the answer is decidedly the latter. Like we, this is a chance to reimagine and redesign and we have no choice but to do that. So the opportunity is actually um, as, as profound as ever right now for um, social medicine and upstream medicine and public health experts to now engage in public discourse, to go into the commons, right? And to start talking amongst peers and to shape not just what it means to understand how to wash your hands, but what it means to reimagine what health means, right? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a nice positive angle like on it because it's, yeah, it's, it's not, not a great situation, but yeah, you're right. It, it continues to happen. So hopefully we can take lessons from it. And just my final question, just something, in, you know, a bit lighter, but just, uh, you know, it seems like you've, 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 you've known that you've wanted to be in social medicine for a long time. It's, you know, it's, it's a part of your lineage in a lot of senses. Um, what kind of advice would you give your say 21 year old self? Because it seems like you've known your plan for a long time, but obviously you still run this course for a fair amount of time. Hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I, I made a couple of really good decisions when I was 21 or, or thereabouts. And I don't know if I would have trusted the 45 year old me yeah, <laughs> at 21, yeah. I, I may have, like, I feel like, um, the, through a mix of, uh, youthful, um, passion and hubris, <laughs> I said, you know what, I'm going to commit myself to a program that commits me to work for the poor. Um, I'm not going to go into a specialty kind of, you know, I, I, when I signed up for that program, it was, um, it, it altered my course and it, it made these, these concepts that I learned about early on that animated me like praxis, you know, what it means to understand theory, even then what it means to actually be in service and hands-on practice and then how to 
being a dialectic, how to be in a dialogue between those things. I, I, I was fascinated by that in terms of philosophy courses and, and, and discussions with mentors. How do you meld theory and practice? And then how do you overlay that with a deep sense of you know, interest in justice and in equity? And, uh, and so I said to myself at 21, around 21, I was like, if I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna sign up for service. I'm gonna you know, lock myself into doing the work rather than what I could easily do, as you can tell now, was just talk a lot about it, <laughs> Yeah. right? So at 21, um, the wisest choice that I made, and I, I'm grateful to that 21-year-old version of me for doing it, was to commit myself to, was to commit myself to service, was to like caring for people, seeing people. And, and the value, the insights that have come from that, um, I continue to reap. You know, every time I see a, a patient, every time I talk with an individual, every time I'm working with with partners that we work with you know who are doing the same thing i draw on the the insights that come from just taking all of these grand kind of notions and then distilling it down into you know um, a conversation with somebody and learning from that i I, so i don't know if the if i advise the 21 year old to do anything different necessarily i would say you know whatever you're thinking keep thinking it um don't you know you're on the right path but don't trust me, this 45-year-old version of me, just like, you know, forget me for a minute, just do what you're going to do. And uh, maybe the one thing I would do is like, you know, you know develop better exercise habits because I need to now I'm paying the price for not being as healthy as I should be. So I would probably exercise more. And uh, I see this Athar in your background there. I love music, man. And the, um, you know, I think that um, the 21-year-old me should have made more space for um music in my life uh, learning that and I, I still adore it and I still play around a little bit here and there but um, yeah, I would nice. love to be far more proficient as a musician yeah. um, in that way so uh, that's probably the advice I give me I, I give myself advice to be a bit more well-rounded yeah no fantastic <laughs> well thank you so much uh, Rishi uh, where's the best place for people to find out more about you um you know I'm, I, I spend more time than I should on Twitter um but I'm also uh, you know my, my team and I um can be found through healthbegins.org. So www.healthbegins.org is where um, our, is our online home. And folks are always welcome to approach me through through that site or directly through you, Mike, or, or whomever. Yeah. Thank you for this opportunity just to, to talk with you and think through this. No, no problem at all. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, I was just, um, what's your assessment of, you know, the, the mood, the interest in these notions and moving upstream, you know, among the audience that you speak to. It's, it's, it, I literally, I actually spoke to uh, Lord Nigel Crisp who ran the NHS um, from I think 2006 to 2012. And he was, he was exactly in the same camp. Um, and so it is being echoed and, and he was talking about see like he was saying that maybe we're at the peak of doctors and maybe we'll see less doctors in the future and far more nurses. Um, and, and, mm. and he's like, they can do 80% of what doctors can do or so. Yeah. He, yeah. And he was just talking about community health and we need to invest in schools and families. And yeah, so it, it definitely is being echoed. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's the same with Australia. Australia is getting a lot better at recognizing just, I guess the systemic problems in terms of like, yeah, yeah, I mean everything you've everything you've spoken about. So it's it, yeah. we're getting there. It's the it's this compassion element. Like it's and, yeah. and, and this is the thing as well. I was talking to um, another TED speaker called BJ Miller who works sure. with palliative care. Yeah. yeah, and he was he was just saying how interesting it is that he. So do you know of him? Do you? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, but he was just saying 
when he was first disabled, like people felt sorry for him and they gave him pity. And, and we're going through this thing where we had pity and, and now we're understanding that there's sympathy and empathy and we're finally getting around to compassion right. um, and respecting compassion. Cause we've always had compassionate people, but we haven't like, it hasn't been treasured. It's, yeah. it's weird that that's only happening in the last kind of 20 or 30 years kind of thing. Uh, that's a really nice way of putting it. Yeah. I like that a lot. You know, speaking of Nacho Crisp's um, insight, can I mention one thing? This is, might be part of the recording or not. Um, sure. Um, one of the the most fundamental things that we need to do to you know meet this moment is to recognize that uh, beyond the formal healthcare workforce and the formal public health workforce, governmental workforce especially, um, we need to pause and elevate and honor and invest more in the community-based workforce. In the U.S. in particular, we've been very involved along with many allies to help to forge a national alliance around a community-based workforce which includes community health workers uh, in the U.S., also the, the, um, the version for Latino populations, uh, meaning promotoras de salud, so um, uh, very consistent with uh, Latin populations in the U.S. Uh, and that also means other community-based workforce members like doulas or uh, peer navigators, recovery coaches for folks experiencing addic- addiction, community-based nonprofit staff, you know, housing service providers, We've, we've seen in every um, major disaster um, worldwide, and this is something that's been recognized by international associations, international bodies, uh, the UN, UNDP in particular, um, and several organizations in the US, and I'm sure the same is true for Australia. We've always recognized that um, beyond the formal healthcare, formal public health workforce, there's always a community-based kind of response that's essential to effective you know, recovery and then um, moving forward. So we've been, I think, recognizing, and I think this is an opportunity to really fully invest and elevate a community-based workforce and honor their expertise, honor the, the relational insights, the expertise that community health workers bring. And I, I think there's a lot of learning to be done, both in the formal public health sector, as well as the, certainly in the healthcare sector, to recognize that we need to create space for community-based workforce. And that the more we can honor that work of the community-based workforce to improve outcomes for places and not just for you know, my patients, or you know, for one particular disease, the more we can kind of peg the the way we pay for these things to outcomes for defined places, yeah. the more um, I think we'll we'll see an accelerated recognition of community-based workforce members. So I just wanted to elevate that point because I think that's a fundamental insight that COVID nineteen certainly the pandemic has um, elevated. I think for a lot of us, in, and that's something that I've been very passionate about for a while. Yeah, and then I think the broader point is that. You know, we were recognizing that um, as many as many heroes as there are in hospitals and in clinics these days who are responding to people who are sick from COVID-19, there are many other heroes that don't often get that moniker um, in public health and who prevent people from getting sick in the first place. And so it's time for us to really ask ourselves about where we're putting our money um, as a society into prevention versus just treatment and recognizing the heroism of prevention rather than just the heroism of treatment. Yeah, I think it's essential right now. No, absolutely. And and I will keep that in because, yeah, I definitely agree. It's very important. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rishi. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, this is a pleasure. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. To learn more about Dr. Rishi Manchanda, visit healthbegins.org. You can also head to the podcast section of Hot Dog where we've put links to all the other places where you can learn um, more about Rishi and his team. 
We've also put links to all the people, organizations, and resources mentioned in the episode. Just Google hot doc and podcast. That's H-O-T-D-O-C and the word podcast, and you'll find the page. And as always, if you found value in this episode, share it with someone. That's the best way that you can support the show is just to share. Until next time.